And I want to do, uh, say something a bit different as we begin this message um, that I was mentioning at the beginning, is that we come together for the one purpose of surrendering all of our lives to Jesus. And so this morning, hopefully you'll be hearing from God and seeing, oh, this is a way that I need to surrender more of my life to Jesus. But the other side of that is that we are also inviting others to do the same. Um, that we, this morning, is not just for, okay, what is in this for me? We should be thinking, what is this giving me and teaching me that someone else needs? And so I want to encourage you that you're listening for yourself, of like, what do I need to hear this morning? But also, uh, listen as if you need to teach this to someone else. Uh, that we are disciples who make disciples, and that means if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be making disciples of other people, teaching them to follow. So be listening, what's in this for me, but also be listening as if you need to give this to someone else, uh, you know, like tomorrow. Like tomorrow I need to teach this to someone else. Tomorrow I need to tell somebody about this passage. So I want to encourage you to listen in that way. I want to start by telling you a story about the first time that I swore. From an early age, I knew that uh, swearing was bad, and so uh, throughout my life, I think there's been about two or three times that I've used a swear word, and one of those times was in fourth grade, and I don't remember uh, the exact word I said, I think it was the F word, and I was in the hallway with one of my friends, and he was trying to get me to say, say this word, say this word, go on and say this word, and I kept saying no, and I kept rejecting him and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, you need to say it, come on, say it, and he kept pushing me and pushing me, and finally I said it. I swore. I said the word that he wanted me to say, and my immediate response after that was to say, well, I bet this person wouldn't say that. And so I was talking about somebody else in our class, and I said, you know, I had just sworn, and I was like, well, I bet this person, I bet they wouldn't be able to say that. Because I felt validated in my friend's eyes. I had done something bad, and now I felt superior to someone else, saying, you know, I bet they wouldn't have the courage or the guts to say that word. So I immediately started comparing myself to them. I took, quickly took on the identity of someone who uh, had a bad mouth, even though uh, up until then I had a you know, clean mouth, if you want to say it that way, of not swearing. My friend approved of me, and then my focus turned to somebody else who wouldn't have the courage that I had. Uh, then, Even though this other person now had my disapproval for being a non-swearer, which is what I just was you know, a couple seconds ago, and I tell you this story as an example of peer pressure in action. And this peer pressure pushed me to do something that I believe was bad and that I shouldn't do. And I didn't even want to do it. But as soon as I did it, my identity changed. The way I thought about myself changed. My sense of who I was changed. I was now someone who had the courage to swear. And I looked down at, down at others who probably wouldn't have that same courage. And so, ask yourself, and think to yourself, have you ever been pressured into doing something you didn't want to do? Have you ever been pressured into doing something that you knew was bad? Or have you ever been pressured into not doing something that you knew was good? Or have you ever been pressured into not doing something that you wanted to do because of what someone else would think or what they were telling you? And I'd like to... Uh, what would it be like if you always did what you knew was good? even when others didn't want you to do it, or even when others were telling you to do something bad. And there's a term in the, in the therapy and counseling profession that describes what this is like. It's called differentiation. Uh, and it's you know, just a big old word. Uh, differentiation is, uh, here's a quote, the ability, ability to remain connected in relationship 
to significant people in our lives and yet not have our reactions and behaviors determined by them. Differentiation is the ability to remain connected in relationship to significant people in our lives and yet not have our reactions and behaviors determined by them. Differentiation recognizes that in any relationship there's a tension between separateness and togetherness. And togetherness means you're remaining connected to this person. You're remaining connected to these significant people in your lives, or maybe they're not even significant. Maybe they're just like people you barely know. But the separateness means that your reactions and behaviors are not determined by them. And so you are together, but you're also separate. You have your own beliefs, goals, and values, which you won't compromise because of what, uh, because of the people around you and what they're thinking. And so what does it look like? Here's a, here's a couple of quotes about what differentiation looks like in action. Uh, differentiation involves not being afraid of others, not avoiding them, and not being overly influenced by them. It means remaining connected to people with different opinions, net, yet not forming our beliefs or making our decisions based on the voice of your parents, the voice of a church officer, or even the voice of your spouse, or you could expand it to your boss, your neighbor, friend, coworkers. And here's another quote. Differentiation refers to a person's capacity to define his or own life's goals and values apart from the pressures of those around them. The degree to which you're able to affirm your distinct values and goals apart from the pressures around you, which is separateness, while remaining close to people important to you, togetherness, helps determine your level of differentiation. People with a high level of differentiation have their own beliefs, convictions, directions, goals, and values apart from the pressures around them. They can choose before God how they want to be without being controlled by the approval or disapproval of others. Intensity of feelings, high stress, or the anxiety of others around them does not overwhelm their capacity to think intelligently. And this, is, this concept is so important because if we aren't then differentiated, if we haven't differentiated who we are apart from the people that we're together with, uh, we'll do one of two things. Either we're going to look to those people to tell us who we are and what we're supposed to do, or, you know, the people we're with, it's like, what should I be like? And I'm looking to them to tell me, who am I? Who, and what should I be doing? Or second, we'll disconnect ourselves from those that are unlike us and only hang out with people that are like us. You know, these people, they're not how I want to be, and so I'm going to disconnect from them, and I'm just going to hang out with people who are exactly how I want to be, and we've just become part of a group that's just, you know, exactly like us. And so how do we become the type of people who aren't peer pressured? How do we become people who aren't tossed about by what other people want, do, think, or feel? And how do we do that while still remaining connected to them, caring for them, and loving them? And today as we continue this series in the Gospel according to Luke called To Seek and Save, uh, Jesus came to earth seeking and saving, and he was with people that are very much different from him. And this series has given us an up-close picture of who Jesus is, what he taught, what it means to be his disciple. And if there was ever a person who was, did not fall under peer pressure or not give in to it, it was Jesus. Jesus lived a differentiated life. He remained deeply connected with people while not letting his actions or his behaviors be determined by them. Jesus faced opposition, pressure, and hostility toward of how he was living and what he was teaching, but he never let that change what he was doing or what he was saying, even though people didn't like it. And this actually enabled him to love people because he didn't let them influence his actions. He could say and do what needed to be said and done in any given situation. And he could tell people difficult words that they needed to hear. He could stick up for the vulnerable and the oppressed, even when it wasn't popular to do. And he could love 
people and hang out with people that everyone said he shouldn't be loving or hanging out with. And so these are some of the things that I'm excited to see as we go through the gospel according to Luke. In the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see Jesus' foundation uh, for that confidence and his courageous living um, and how he was able to love everyone, even if how he loved them or who he loved made people upset. And Jesus' foundation can be our foundation too. And we can live confident and courageous lives and love like Jesus loved. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the page number is on the back of the um, bulletin if you want to grab one of those. And you'll want a bulletin and a pen for later on in the service when I have you write some things down. And so let's begin by reading at verse 40, Luke chapter 2. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And this story is bookended by the first verse and then the last verses of Jesus' growth. And both include comments about his wisdom and the favor. Jesus' wisdom is going to be uh, demonstrated in this story by how he's interacting with the, the teachers in the temple. And in 2.40, we're told the favor of God was upon him. And in 2.52, the end of the passage, it says that he increased in favor with God and man. So God's presence and approval is resting on Jesus' life. And these two summaries show progression in Jesus' growth. And he's, Jesus is the divine, divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, which means he's fully God, but he also was growing uh, in, in the reality that he's fully human. In the last passage that we uh, looked at, uh, Jesus was about 40 days old. And verse 40's description of Jesus' growth uh, fast-forwards the story to when he's 12 years old. And the setting for this story is the family's yearly trip to Jerusalem. And there was three uh, feasts from the Old Testament that people, Jewish people, the Israelites, were required to travel to Jerusalem for. And those were the Passover, which was sometimes also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because Passover was one day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened right after it for seven days. The second festival is Pentecost, and the third is Tabernacles. But because many Jews were scattered, they weren't all living in the land of Israel, but they're scattered around the Roman Empire, uh, they would often pick just one of the festivals to come to uh, for once a year. And Passover was celebrated at the beginning of the Jewish calendar, which would be March or April on our calendar, and men were required to go, but it was optional for uh, women to go with their spouse. But the fact that Mary and Joseph both go, continues to demonstrate these people are taking God really seriously, want to do things as a family. They both want to honor God. And the trip from Nazareth would be about 80 miles, which would take about four days traveling 20 miles a day. And many would travel in caravans for protection from highway robbers. And this is happening uh, today. We know that uh, Jewish boys go through a bar mitzvah. That is a later tradition. But still, even at this time, you know, the, the bar mitzvah happens at the age of 13, but even during this time, at the age of 12, uh, people are often preparing their children because at the age of 13 is when they become responsible before God on their own. It's like, okay, you aren't covered by your parents anymore. Like, you're responsible before God on your own. And so this could have been like part of Jesus' preparation of him turning 13. And uh, this four-day trip that they took every year, that's one way, so four there, four back, and then the festival itself would have been eight days, this is like a 16-day commitment, and it's time-consuming and costly. And we know Mary and Joseph don't have a lot of money. Uh, we've been told that already in Luke's Gospel. And so, just one minor thing we can think about uh, in 
from that is are we willing to let uh, our obedience to God and worship of God cost us something? How much are we willing to do in order to worship and obey God? Mary and Joseph's example, again from the last week we saw too, challenge us to not let inconvenience or discomfort get in the way of obeying and worshiping God because they did this big trip every year. So after this yearly trip, a problem is soon discovered on the return trip. Let's look at verse 43. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in the temple, or stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And so since they uh, stayed until the feast was ended, it shows us that they didn't just come for the one day of Passover, but they stayed for the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days after. And so they were there for eight days total. And like I said, it was, it was common for people to make this journey with a group of others, a caravan of others, because there could be highway robbers on that trip there. And it could also need to be able to experience it with a whole bunch of other people. Like this is what we're doing as people making this trip. And they went a day's journey and didn't see Jesus. You know, some of you are thinking like, well, Jesus, I'm like going through a store and I don't see my kid for uh, a minute. I'm going to be like, whoa, where's my kid? But they go a day's journey. But it would have natural as they're traveling with relatives and friends, other people from Nazareth, like, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is maybe hanging out with his friends or traveling along with them. So they didn't think anything of it. But then when everyone's coming together after the first day or maybe they're looking around and being like, where is he? And they start checking over people. Uh, they, they find Jesus is nowhere to be found. So they return to Jerusalem searching for him and, you know, this is starting to feel more like a Home Alone movie than a Bible story. I'm like, you know, that moment in the plane when the mom is like, Kevin! You know, he's at home. So they were like, where is Jesus? After three days, they find him. And these three days include the one day of travel out from Jerusalem, the one day of travel back to Jerusalem, and then one day probably searching within Jerusalem. And they're a bit surprised at where they find him. Look at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So the teachers in the ancient world, would, they would kind of sit with their students. So as you imagine this teacher sitting down, and there's a whole bunch of students sitting around. They'd have kind of this question and answer session. Maybe the kids would be asking questions, maybe the teachers would be asking questions, and they'd be doing answers. And this is where his parents find Jesus. He's not only perhaps asking questions, but he's giving answers. And Jesus' parents are astonished. And this word kind of has a sense of being surprised to the point of overwhelmed. It's like, you know, they're just like overwhelmed at what they see and surprised. Like, this is where we find him? You know, perhaps they thought the worst when he was missing. Like, what if if he got taken? What if he's dead? What if, you know, what happened to him? Perhaps they expected to find him somewhere scared and crying. Instead, they find him amazing people by his understanding of God and his word. And upon finding him, Mary gives kind of this light scolding to Jesus. So return to me uh, to verse 48. So it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And if we were in Mary's sandals, because they wore sandals, not shoes, we might say something like, don't do that again. You almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> that might be what we say. Mary makes her dis- their distress and their suffering of what happened to a parent. And then Jesus responds. And these words we're about to read are the first words spoken by Jesus in the Gospel according to Luke. And so look at verse 49. 
He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? The English translation is 18 words, and the original Greek, at least in the ESV, is 18 words. The original Greek, Jesus speaks just 15 words. Jesus' response is short, but significant, because in these words, he's introducing himself to us. We've already been introduced to Jesus by other people, and angels, and Mary's song, and Zechariah's song, and Simeon's song, and this is the first time Jesus himself is introducing himself, telling us what is his identity and what is his purpose. What is his whole life going to be oriented around? And Jesus' question to them expresses surprise. In his mind, they should have known where he was. But it isn't so much, uh, he doesn't say, like, you should have known I'd be in the temple. And so it's not so much a, like, you know, Jesus just really loves the temple. Like, it's, you know, pretty and big or whatever. He likes running around in there. It's not so much about geographic location, but kind of the why. Uh, he calls the temple his father's house. Like, this is where you should have expected to find me. The second question makes that clear. He says, did you not know? So Fraser says, why are we looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And that word, must, did you not know I must be in my father's house? It translates a Greek word that's going to come up several other times throughout the gospel, according to Luke, uh, expressing Jesus' purpose and mission. And so just a summary, Jesus says he must preach the good news. He must suffer many things and be rejected and die and rise again. He says that scripture must be fulfilled in him. And Jesus' sense of what he must do or what must happen shows how he is in tune with God's plans and God's purposes. And so we can ask ourselves, you know, what are the, the musts in our life? And who determines what those are? What are the musts in your life? What are you thinking, I must do this? And who determines what those are? And Jesus' question to his parents, must, shows his relational priority and his purpose flowing from that relationship. They searched for Jesus in Jerusalem, wondering where he was. Perhaps they thought, maybe he's at the house of where we stayed. They come in, they come in. Is, is Jesus here? Oh, maybe they start going up the street. You know, is Jesus in this house? Is Jesus in this house? Is Jesus in this house? But he says, you know, where, should I, where should you have known that I should be? Whose house would I be at? My father's house. His mom says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus answers, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so who defines Jesus' identity? Who determines Jesus' actions? And Jesus gets his identity and purpose from his heavenly father. Jesus listens to God, the father, to know who he is and what he should do. He didn't go with his parents back to Nazareth, but he stayed behind in Jerusalem to be in his father's house. And Jesus is aware that the primary relationship in his life, and that's at the very top of our priority list, is his vertical relationship with God. That relation matters the most to him. What God thinks of him matters the most. What God says is true of him matters the most. What God wants him to do matters the most. And Jesus wakes up saying, Who am I? I am the Son of God. What should I do? The will of my Father. Our big idea for today is this. It's a bit of a two-part. One is like a truth, and the second is a response. So uh, first is children of God get their identity and mission from God. Children of God get their identity and mission from God. Jesus is the Son of God, and he gets his identity and mission from God. And when we trust in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family, and through Jesus, we become God's children, his sons and daughters, and therefore we need to get our identity and our mission from God. And here's the application of that. This is kind of the second part of how, what we should do about that. So it's let God tell you who you are and what to do. Let God tell you who you are 
and what to do. If children of God get their identity and mission from God, well then we should let God tell us who we are and what to do. Everyone you meet is going to have some sort of idea about who you are. Funny, smart, hard worker, kind, caring, pretty, handsome, good friend, responsible. And you can work hard to get an identity from them. You can work, you can let them tell you who you are. I am smart, I'm a hard worker, I'm responsible. Because that's what people are telling me. I've worked hard and now they're telling it to me. And we will do things to get people to think of us in the way we want our getting our identity. You're building an identity from what they think of you by your actions and performance. And the person whose opinion we care about the most is who's going to determine our actions. We let that person tell us who we are, what we're worth, whether we are loved, whether we belong. That person defines us. They give us our identity. And whoever gives us our identity is who we are living for. And in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer states that all of Jesus' teachings on Christian discipleship are about how to live as God's children. I live as children in God's family. If you look at Jesus' teachings, look through the Sermon on the Mount. How often is he referring to the Father and trying to get us to think of our lives as God's children? J.F. Packer writes, Just as the knowledge of his unique sonship controlled Jesus' living of his own life on earth, so he insists that the knowledge of our adoptive sonship must determine and control our lives too. And in fact, the fact that we are God's sons and daughters once we trust in Jesus should change how we see all of life and how we live it. And so, you know, just two examples. One example is prayer. How do you talk to God? Do you talk to Him as a far-off supervisor who is too busy for you and is just checking in to see how, you know, on your job to see how you're doing? Is that how you talk to God? Or like making kind of, just send off requests? Like, I just need this stuff fixed. He's almost like a, your landlord. Like, I need some stuff fixed in my life. <laughs> or do you talk to Him as a Father who loves you, cherishes you, is guiding you? Another example is how we think about our daily needs. Do we look to God as our Father to provide for the daily needs that we have? Do we see that all of that is given to us? It's coming from the hand of a kind and loving Father. Verses 51 and 52 wrap up the story. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Throughout Jesus' life, people will be trying to understand who are you and what are you about? We're going to see that as we go through this gospel account. What is your identity and mission? And if they don't understand who he is, they won't understand what he's doing. Well, how he's, why he's saying the things he's doing? Why he's acting the way he's doing? If they don't understand who he is. And Mary shows us the proper response of someone who doesn't get it at first. Though she does not understand, she doesn't dismiss what he says, but treasures it up in her heart. This needs further reflection, more pondering. I'm going to think on that, not just like, well, that's weird, you know, move on, you know, or like, that can't be true of you. She has continuous pondering and treasuring in her heart. And Jesus is not a rebellious preteen at the age of 12. He leaves with his parents for Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus obeys the fifth commandment to honor his, honor his father and mother in more ways than one. He both honors his heavenly father and he honors his earthly father and earthly mother. And the question for you is, who's going to have primary influence over your life? Who's going to have primary influence over your life? Who gives you your identity, your sense of who you are? Who determines your actions, your mission and purpose in life? Who are you living for? 
who's going to be at the center of your life? We can look to three sources besides God to find out who we are. First, we can say, I am what I do. I am what I do. We define ourselves by being good at something. I'm a good athlete. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good student. I'm a good son or daughter. I'm a good wife. I'm a good husband. I'm a good employee. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good parent. Or we define ourselves uh, by being a certain way. I am competent. I am responsible. I am smart. I am funny. I am pretty. I am respectable. So is there something that you feel you need to keep doing or keep being? And if you stopped, you wouldn't know who you are. Is there something in your life like, if I stop being good at this, I want to know who I am. Or if I stop being funny, if my friends started thinking I'm not funny, would you lose your sense of who you are? If you're, I'm a good student, and if you stop being a good student, would you think, I don't know who I am. Is there something that you feel you need to keep doing or keep being, and if you stopped, you wouldn't know who you are? Or maybe it's being a good Christian. Like, I need to do all these Christian activities, and if I stop them, I wouldn't know who I am. Second, we can find our identity and other sources. I am what I have. First, it's I am what I do. I am what I have. I'm the job I have. I'm the money I have. I'm the relationship status I have. I'm the house I have. I'm the car I have. I'm the clothes I have. We use what we have to say something about our values, significance, and status. We get our sense of who we are from the things we have. And we might say, I don't know who I'd be without this job. I don't know who I'd be if I wasn't married to this person. Is there something that if you lost it, you wouldn't know who you are anymore? You'd be lost. Is there something that if you lost it, you wouldn't know who you are anymore? And you'd feel lost. Third, we can say, I am what others think of me. So we can say, I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what others think of me. Our value, worth, and significance would come from what others think of us. If they think good things about me, then I'm worth something. If they don't, then I'm worthless. And we don't, uh, we don't do something because of how someone else might react and how they might feel because of what we say or do. We might be trying to manage other people's emotions and responses uh, and change our actions to get people to think of us a certain way or to feel about us a certain way or have a certain attitude about us. And so we do things in order to get them to uh, have to think about us how we want them to think about us. And you can combine these, uh, these things in kind of an equation. So it would be who I am equals what I do plus what others think of me. And the other would be who I am equals what I have plus what others think of me. Great handwriting, isn't it? I should be a teacher. Everyone would be able to read it for sure. Joking, that's pretty terrible. But so it's either this equation: who I am equals what I do plus what others think of me. Like these are the things I do, and here's what they think of me. Or it's who I am is what I have. Like I have this house, and so people respect me. I have this job, and so people respect me. And this is what they think of me. And if I wasn't wearing the right clothes, what I have, uh, people would think differently about me. But here's another option: we can let God tell us who we are, and get our identity from Him. So it would be who I am equals what God says or what God thinks of me. Ram equals what God says about me or what God thinks about me. 
If God tells you who you are, then you will let him tell you what to do. Your identity and mission will come from him. Every morning we ought to wake up saying, who am I? I'm a child of God. What should I do? The will of my Father. J.I. Packer later says it like this, Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. And he says, say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. And so let's go back to the idea of differentiation. Differentiation is the ability to remain connected in relationship to significant people in our lives, and yet not have our reactions and behaviors determined by them. So how is that possible? How can we do that? How can we be close with people and not separate from people, but also uh, have, not have our actions and behaviors determined by that? It's because we let God tell us who we are, not them. Or by what we do or what we have. Our sense of self is not defined by the appreciation, criticisms, evaluations, affirmations, or approval of others. If your identity comes from God, it floats above what you do and what others think of you. They can't touch it because God's given it to you. And for us, uh, as Christians, differentiation isn't, I'm going to do what I want, it doesn't matter what others think. You know, that would be the other way to think of it, of like, okay, I'm in this group of people, and I have my own beliefs, my own values, my, values, my own goals, and I'm going to do what I want, it doesn't matter what you think of me. That's not how we act as Christians. You know, we don't create our own identity and purpose. This is who I am. We receive it from God. We do what God wants, because we belong to Him as His child. If your identity comes from God, you can remain deeply connected with people. Even people who have completely different beliefs, lifestyles, and opinions than you, or who don't approve of how you live. Because notice that Jesus still obeys his parents. He's defined by God, and that doesn't mean that he doesn't listen to anybody. In fact, it frees him to listen to people, because those people don't define him. His identity is not formed by them, and he isn't at risk of losing his identity. But if I, if I do what they want me to do to submit to my parents, then I'm not going to know who I am, because who, this is who I am. I can't listen to what they say to me. No, it frees him to be able to actually love and care for people and listen to people. So I want you, if you have a piece of paper, and encourage you to grab both, and if you don't have one, make a list of people right now that you are afraid of. You can tell who you're afraid of because they influence your actions. You either do things you don't want to do, or you do things they want to do, or you don't do things that you want to do. Who are the people you're afraid of? Let's take a moment. Boss, coworkers, parents, spouse, neighbors, friends. Who are people that you're afraid of? Because you can tell because they influence your actions. The question is, what do you do because you're afraid of them? What would you do if you weren't afraid of them? What do you do because you're afraid of them? And if you weren't afraid of them, what would you do instead? How would your actions change if you weren't afraid of them? You know, the big, a big area for us, we can make a list real quickly. You can make a list of people you're afraid to talk to about Jesus around. Like, if I don't bring up Christian things or God things or Jesus things around these people because of what they'll think of me or what they'll do. We change our actions because of them. 
you're afraid, who are people you're afraid to share your faith with? There's probably no greater area where we need to apply this than in talking to people about Jesus because we think, because we let other people influence our actions. Like, I really want them to know about God, or I really want to talk to them about this, but I'm afraid they're going to get upset. I'm afraid they're going to be disappointed. I'm afraid they're going to reject me and they're not going to like me anymore. So, if you made that list, this is the truth we need to remember in all those relationships. As we write down, you can write down above it or on the side of it or on the bottom of it. What they think matters less than what God thinks. What they think matters less than what God thinks. Those, these are the people we're afraid of. And we need to think to ourselves, what God, uh, what God thinks, uh, what they think matters less than what God thinks. Because often we let what they think of us determine what we do. And I want to give you an image of this help me. It comes from a, a quote in a book that I read about pastoral ministry, but what the author says applies to everyone who calls himself a believer. And the book said this. It said, pastors, you know, insert yourself in there, you know, I, or you know, children of God, uh, need to become secure in the love of the Father, practically working His love into the fabric of their lives and the foundation of their work. People need to become secure in the love of the Father, practically working His love into the fabric of their lives and the foundation of their work. Everyone needs to do that. This book was applying it to pastors, but everyone needs to do that. And the image that came to mind for me as I reflected on this was kind of like uh, a fountain. Have you all been wondering what that is? Well, I told Emma, so she knows. Uh, have you all been wondering what that is? This is me attempting to draw a fountain. And that's as good as it's going to get. Um, but uh, you've probably seen fountains like this, kind of like a cascading waterfall. And so... Each of these is like a little pool of water, and the, the, fount, the fountain at the top, it'll have like a little spot where the water comes out, and then it'll kind of flow into this one, fill that up, and then it'll flow down to this one, and then it flows down to this one, flows down to this one, flows down to this one, and then it gets pumped back up once it gets down into this pool. Um, so that is what that is, This is as you, if you've been wondering. I had, this image came to me um, because the... The water coming out of the top of the fountain fills the first pool, fills the second pool, fills the third pool, and so on and so on. Um, but if there's no water coming out of the top, um, all of them will be empty. And I almost bought one of these fountains to put in my office to remind me of uh, this, this image. Um, each of those, think of each of these little pools as like, um, this is my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my kids, my relationship, my, this is my work relationships, or this is my school relationships. Um, or you know, with my parents or my family. And if we come to each of these, we're coming to each of these fountains, and, be, and we, if we come, imagine the fountain's turned off, so there's no water in it. We come to each of them uh, empty, um, looking for something, thirsting, um, and dry. And so what we actually need to do is have God love for us, fill us up as his child, to fill every aspect of our lives. And so it's like, okay, this is me. And if, I'm, if this is the first pool that I'm responsible for filling up, it's like, I need to be filled with the love of God. And I need to be filled with the reality that I'm his beloved child. I'm his beloved son. I'm his beloved daughter. As we're filled up with, with that, and now that's going to flow down to, okay, that's going to flow into how I'm going to relate to my spouse. And that's going to flow into how I relate to my kids. And that's going to flow down into how I relate to my coworkers or neighbors or friends. But if it's turned off, we're going to each one of those, and it's like, we're just empty. And if it's turned off, you're, you aren't living from God's love for you. 
Instead, you'll go to each of those areas of your life and the people in them, and you'll be living for love in whatever form they come. Instead of living from God's love in each of them, you'll be living for love from them, what they think of you, what they approve of you. You'll be looking to those things to tell you who you are. And it can be overwhelming to think about our whole lives and be like, oh, geez, I just need to be a better Christian and a better follower of Jesus with, in my family, with my kids, at work, with my neighbors. And of all these areas, I just need to be, become better at all of them. It can feel overwhelming. But it's much, much easier to think, it's simpler to think, in all these relationships or situations, I'm to live from God's love for me and not for His love. And so we enter each of them. You know what? If I've been filled up with God's love and I know I'm loved by Him and that's good, I'm just you know, wet and drenched with that. Now, as a beloved child of God, I parent my kids. Or as a beloved child of God, I interact with myself. As a beloved child of God, I go to work. As a beloved child of God, I talk to my neighbors and friends. As a beloved child of God, I tell people about Jesus. And so we come into each of those with this sense of, I'm doing this as a beloved child of God. Those things, you know, what I am as a as a parent or as a spouse or as a coworker. We're not saying, you know, I am a pastor. I am a I am, you know, an employee of this thing. I am a friend. But we're saying, as a beloved child of God, how do I pastor? It becomes a verb rather than an identity. As a beloved child of God, how do I parent? And so it's affecting our actions because it's flowing from this is who I am, and now what am I going to do as a beloved child of God? And so what if you went into all of your relationships with a clear and deep sense that you're God's beloved son or daughter? What if you went into every situation with a clear and deep sense that you're God's beloved son or daughter? What if you went into every situation or relationship living from God's love and not for his love or other people's love? How would that change how you engage your relationships and responsibilities? So think about that. Like just say all those names you wrote down, what would they have people are afraid of? What would it look like if as God's beloved child, I'm going to go into this relationship. How would that change it? As we think about us as a community, Jesus listened to other people. Him saying, uh, who I am comes from God. What he thinks to me matters most doesn't mean, and I don't care what you think of me or what you say. He listened to his parents. We need both God and a God-centered community speaking to our lives so we can live our identity and mission as God's children. So this means we need to open ourselves up to people who can help us discern uh, what God says about us and what God wants and what we're supposed to do. And so when we're differentiated or we're getting our day from God, it doesn't mean no one's opinion matters to us or that uh, we never listen to people. Because the one extreme is letting people completely tell us who we are and determine all of our actions. But it's also not good if someone tells you how you've hurt them or tries to correct you and you say, well, I don't care what you think of me. It only matters what God thinks of me, and so I'm not going to be listening to you. Well, that's not healthy either. When we live in relationships with other people, and the Bible is very clear that God uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to mature us, guide us, teach us, and correct us. And uh, let me just say, it's okay to care what people think of you to a certain degree. Degree. That just means they matter to you. Like We should care what each of us thinks of what, you know, in this room, we should care what we think about, what other people think about you. That just means they matter to you. How else do you be in relationship with you? But it's like, what is the foundation? What's the fundamental? What's the core thing of like, ultimately this is who I am. I am God's child. And if we know that, if this is my identity, this is who I am, this is where my worth comes from, well now we can 
relate with people in a healthy way instead of getting it all messy where we're saying, like, I need to do this um, so that Heather will think this of me, or I need to act this way so that Larry will, will think this of me way, or, oh, I made that mistake and other people saw it, and so now, you know, everyone just thinks I'm a you know, loser and I can't do things right. And it's like, well, no, what is my identity? As God's child, I can inter- we can interact with one another and not have our identity shaped by it. What's not okay, you know, it's okay to care if people think of you to a certain degree, because they matter to you. What, what is not okay is constantly managing what they think of you, and constantly saying, I need to do this so they think that of me, or I need to do that, or I need to not do this, because what are they going to think of that? So as a community, we can help each other uh, see this is where your foundational identity is, God's children. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we can keep living in that and showing each other what that looks like, I'm expressing that to one another um, and helping each other say, you know, why my identity and my mission come from God. I would do that as a community. Let's pray. Father, would you take the truth that once we've trusted in Jesus, we are adopted into your family. And now the thing that matters most about us is that you say, that's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter. Would you let that, as Jay Packer said, would you let us think that when we wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, every pause we have in the day, would you let us think it in all of our relationships and responsibilities that we have, would you let us do them as your beloved sons and daughters? In the name we pray, amen.